Section 8 of The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ by Nicholas Notovich. Translated by J. H. Connolly and L. Landsberg. Resume part one in reading the account of the life of isa jesus christ one is struck on the one hand by the resemblance of certain principal passages to accounts in the old and new testaments and on the other by the not less remarkable contradictions which occasionally occur between the buddhistic version the hebraic and christian records to explain this, it is necessary to remember the epochs when the facts were consigned to writing. We have been taught from our childhood that the Pentateuch was written by Moses himself, but the careful researches of modern scholars have demonstrated conclusively that at the time of Moses, and even much later, there existed in the country bathed by the Mediterranean no other writing than the hieroglyphics in Egypt and the cuneiform inscriptions found nowadays in the excavations of babylon we know however that the alphabet and parchment were known in china and india long before moses let me cite a few proofs of this statement we learn from the sacred books of the religion of the wise that the alphabet was invented in china in twenty eight hundred by Fosi, who was the first emperor of china to embrace this religion the ritual and exterior forms of which he himself arranged Yao, the fourth of the Chinese emperors, who is said to have belonged to this faith, published moral and civil laws, and, in 2028, compiled a penal code. The fifth emperor, Son, proclaimed in the year of his accession to the throne that the religion of the wise should thenceforth be the recognized religion of the state, and, in 2282, compiled new penal laws. His laws, modified by the emperor Wu Wang, founder of the dynasty of the Chiu in 1122 are those in existence today and known under the name of changements we also know that the doctrine of the buddha fo whose true name was sakyamuni was written upon parchment foism began to spread in china about 260 years before jesus christ in 206 an emperor of the Qin dynasty who was anxious to learn buddhism sent to india for a buddhist by the name of siliphan and the emperor mingte of the hagna dynasty sent a year before christ's birth to india for the sacred books written by the buddha sakyamuni the founder of the buddhistic doctrine who lived about twelve hundred before christ the doctrine of the buddha gautam or gotama who lived six hundred years before jesus christ was written in the pali language upon parchment at that epoch there existed already in india about eighty-four thousand buddhistic manuscripts the compilation of which required a considerable number of years at the time when the chinese and the hindus possessed already a very rich written literature the less fortunate or more ignorant peoples who had no alphabet transmitted their histories from mouth to mouth and from generation to generation owing to the unreliability of human memory historical facts embellished by oriental imagination soon degenerated into fabulous legends 
which in the course of time were collected and by the unknown compilers entitled the five books of moses as these legends ascribe to the hebrew legislator extraordinary divine powers which enabled him to perform miracles in the presence of pharaoh the claim that he was an israelite may as well have been legendary rather than historical the hindu chroniclers on the contrary owing to their knowledge of an alphabet were enabled to commit carefully to writing not mere legends but the recitals of recently occurred facts within their own knowledge or the accounts brought to them by merchants who came from foreign countries it must be remembered in this connection that in antiquity as in our own days the whole public life of the orient was concentrated in the bazaars there the news of foreign events was brought by the merchant caravans and sought by the dervishes who found in their recitals in the temples and public places a means of subsistence when the merchants returned home from a journey they generally related fully during the first days after their arrival all they had seen or heard abroad such have been the customs of the orient from time immemorial and are today the commerce of india with egypt and later with europe was carried away on by way of jerusalem where as far back as the time of king solomon the hindu caravans brought precious metals and other materials for the construction of the temple from europe merchandise was brought to jerusalem by sea and there unloaded in a port which is now occupied by the city of jaffa the chronicles in question were compiled before during and after the time of jesus christ during his sojourn in india in the quality of a simple student come to learn brahminical and buddhistic laws no special attention whatever was paid to his life when however a little later the first accounts of the events in israel reached india the chroniclers after committing to writing that which they were told about the prophet isa that he had for his following a whole people weary of the yoke of their masters and that he was crucified by order of pilate remembered that this same isa had only recently sojourned in their midst and that an israelite by birth he had come to study among them after which he had returned to his country they conceived a lively interest for the man who had grown so rapidly under their eyes and began to investigate his birth his past and all the details concerning his existence the two manuscripts from which the lama of the convent hemis read to me all that had a bearing upon jesus are compilations from diverse copies written in the tibetan language translations of scrolls belonging to the library of lhasa and brought about two hundred years after christ from india nepal and magad to a convent of mount marbur near the city of lhasa now the residence of the dalai lama these scrolls were written in pali which certain lamas study even now so as to be able to translate it into the tibetan the chroniclers were buddhists belonging to the sect of buddha gautama the details concerning jesus given in the chronicles are disconnected and mingled with accounts of other contemporaneous events to which they bear no relation the manuscripts relate to us first of all according to the accounts given by merchants arriving from judea in the same year when the death of jesus occurred that a just man by the name of isa an israelite in spite of his being acquitted twice by the judges as being a man of god was nevertheless put to death by the order of the pagan governor pilate who feared that he might take advantage of his great popularity to re-establish the kingdom of israel 
and expel from the country its conquerors. Then follow rather incoherent communications regarding the preachings of Jesus among the Gubers and other heathens. They seem to have been written during the first years following the death of Jesus, in whose career a lively and growing interest is shown. One of these accounts, communicated by a merchant, refers to the origin of Jesus and his family. Another tells of the expulsion of his partisans and the persecutions they had to suffer. Only at the end of the second volume is found the first categorical affirmation of the chronicler. He says there that Isa was a man blessed by God, and the best of all, that it was he in whom the great Brahma had elected to incarnate when, at a period fixed by destiny, his spirit was required to, for a time, separate from the Supreme Being. After telling that Isa descended from poor Israelite parents, the chronicler makes a little digression, for the purpose of explaining, according to ancient accounts, who were the sons of Israel. I have arranged all the fragments concerning the life of Isa in chronological order, and have taken pains to impress upon them the character of unity in which they were absolutely lacking. I leave it to the savants, the philosophers and the theologians, to search into the causes for the contradictions which may be found between the life of Isa, which I lay before the public, and the accounts of the Gospels. But I trust that everybody will agree with me in assuming that the version which I present to the public, one compiled three or four years after the death of Jesus, from the accounts of eyewitnesses and contemporaries, has much more probability of being in conformity with truth than the accounts of the Gospels, the composition of which was effected at different epochs and at periods much posterior to the occurrence of the events. Before speaking of the life of Jesus, I must say a few words on the history of Moses, who, according to the so far most accredited legend, was an Israelite. In this respect, the legend is contradicted by the Buddhists. We learn from the outset that Moses was an Egyptian prince, the son of a pharaoh, and that he only was taught by learned Israelites. I believe that if this important point is carefully examined, it must be admitted that the Buddhist author may be right. It is not my intent to argue against the biblical legend concerning the origin of Moses, but I think everyone reading it must share my conviction that Moses could not have been a simple Israelite. His education was rather that of a king's son, and it is difficult to believe that a child introduced by chance into the palace should have been made an equal with the son of the sovereign. The rigor with which the Egyptians treated their slaves by no means attests the mildness of their character. A foundling certainly would not have been made the companion of the sons of a pharaoh, but would be placed among his servants. Add to this the caste spirit so strictly observed in ancient Egypt, a most salient point which is certainly calculated to raise doubts as to the truth of the scriptural story. And it is difficult to suppose that Moses had not received a complete education. How otherwise could his great legislative work, his broad views, his high administrative qualities, be satisfactorily explained. And now comes another question. Why should he, a prince, have attached himself to the Israelites? The answer seems to me very simple. It is known that in ancient as well as in modern times, discussions were often raised as to which of the two brothers should succeed to the father's throne. Why not admit this hypothesis, viz., that Mosa, or Moses, having an elder brother whose existence forbade him to think of occupying the throne of Egypt, contemplated founding a distinct kingdom.
it might very well be that in the view of this end he tried to attach himself to the israelites whose firmness of faith as well as physical strength he had occasion to admire we know indeed that the israelites of egypt had no resemblance whatever to their descendants as regards physical constitution the granite blocks which were handled by them in building the palaces and pyramids are still in place to testify to this fact in the same way i explained to myself the history of the miracles which he is said to have performed before pharaoh although there are no definite arguments for denying the miracles which moses might have performed in the name of god before pharaoh i think it is not difficult to realize that the buddhistic statement sounds more probable than the scriptural gloss the pestilence the smallpox or the cholera must indeed have caused enormous ravages among the dense population of egypt at an epoch when there existed yet but very rudimentary ideas about hygiene and where consequently such diseases must have rapidly assumed frightful virulence in view of pharaoh's fright at the disasters which befell egypt moses's keen wit might well have suggested to him to explain the strange and terrifying occurrences to his father by the intervention of the god of israel in behalf of his chosen people moses was here afforded an excellent opportunity to deliver the israelites from their slavery and have them pass under his own dominion in obedience to pharaoh's will according to the buddhistic version moses led the israelites outside the walls of the city but instead of building a new city within reach of the capital as he was ordered he left with them the egyptian territory pharaoh's indignation on learning of this infringement of his commands by moses can easily be imagined and so he gave the order to his soldiers to pursue the fugitives the geographical disposition of the region suggests at once that moses during his flight must have moved by the side of the mountains and entered arabia by the way over the isthmus which is now cut by the suez canal pharaoh on the contrary pursued with his troops a straight line to the red sea then in order to overtake the israelites who had already gained the opposite shore he sought to take advantage of the ebb of the sea in the gulf which is formed by the coast and the isthmus caused by his soldiers to wade through the ford but the length of the passageway proved much greater than he had expected so that the flood tide set in when the egyptian host was halfway across and of the army thus overwhelmed by the returning waves none escaped death this fact is so simple in itself has in the course of the centuries been transformed by the israelites into a religious legend they seeing it in a divine intervention in their behalf and a punishment which their god inflicted on their persecutors there is moreover reason to believe that moses himself saw the occurrence in this light this however is a thesis which i shall try to develop in a forthcoming work the buddhistic chronicle then describes the grandeur and the downfall of the kingdom of israel and its conquest by the foreign nations who reduced the inhabitants to slavery the calamities which befell the israelites and the afflictions that thenceforth embittered their days were according to the chronicler more than sufficient reasons that god pitying his people and desirous of coming to their aid should descend on earth in the person of a prophet in order to lead them back to the path of righteousness thus the state of things in that epoch justified the belief that the coming of jesus was signalized imminent necessary this explains why the buddhistic traditions could maintain that the eternal spirit separated from the eternal being and incarnated in the child of a pious and once illustrious family doubtless the buddhists in common with the evangelists 
meant to convey by this that the child belonged to the royal house of david but the text in the gospels according to which the child was born from the holy spirit admits of two interpretations while according to buddha's doctrine which is more in conformity with the laws of nature the spirit has but incarnated in a child already born whom god blessed and chose for the accomplishment of his mission on earth the birth of jesus is followed by a long gap in the traditions of the evangelists who either from ignorance or neglect fail to tell us anything definite about his childhood youth or education they commence the history of jesus with his first sermon that is at the epoch when thirty years of age he returns to his country all the evangelists tell us concerning the infancy of jesus is marked by the lack of precision and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit filled with wisdom and the grace of god was upon him says one of the sacred authors luke chapter two verse forty and another and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his shoeing into israel luke chapter one verse eighty as the evangelists compile their writings a long time after the death of jesus it is presumable that they committed to writing only those accounts of the principal events in the life of jesus which happened to come to their knowledge the buddhists on the contrary who compiled their chronicles soon after the passion occurred and were able to collect the surest information about everything that interested them give us a complete and very detailed description of the life of jesus in those unhappy times when the struggle for existence seems to have destroyed all thought of god the people of Israel suffered the double oppression of the ambitious Herod and the despotic and avaricious Romans. Then, as now, the Hebrews put all their hopes in Providence, whom they expected would send them an inspired man who should deliver them from all their physical and moral afflictions. The time passed, however, and no one took the initiative in a revolt against the tyranny of the rulers. In that era of hope and despair, the people of Israel completely forgot that there lived among them a poor Israelite who was a direct descendant from their king David. This poor man married a young girl who gave birth to a miraculous child. The Hebrews, true to their traditions of devotion and respect for the race of their kings, upon learning of this event, went in great numbers to congratulate the happy father and see the child. It is evident that Herod was informed of this occurrence. He feared that this infant, once grown to manhood, might avail himself of his prospective popularity to reconquer the throne of his ancestors. He sent out his men to seize the child, which the Israelites endeavored to hide from the wrath of the king, who then ordered the abominable massacre of the children, hoping that Jesus would perish in this vast human hecatomb. But Joseph's family had warning of the impending danger and took refuge in Egypt. A short time afterward, they returned to their native country. The child had grown during those journeyings in which his life was more than once exposed to danger. Formerly, as now, the Oriental Israelites commenced the instruction of their children at the age of five or six years. Compelled to constantly hide him from the murderous King Herod, the parents of Jesus could not allow their son to go out, and he, no doubt, spent all his time in studying the sacred scriptures, so that his knowledge was sufficiently beyond what would naturally have been expected of a boy of his age to greatly astonish the elders of israel he had in his thirteenth year attained an age when according to jewish law the boy becomes an adult 
has a right to marry and incurs obligations for the discharge of the religious duties of a man there exists still in our times among the israelites an ancient religious custom that fixes the majority of a youth at the accomplished thirteenth year from this epoch the youth becomes a member of the congregation and enjoys all the rights of an adult hence his marriage at this age is regarded as having legal force and is even required in the tropical countries in europe however owing to the influence of local laws and to nature which does not contribute here so powerfully as in warm climates to the physical development this custom is no more in force and has lost all its former importance the royal lineage of jesus his rare intelligence and his learning caused him to be looked upon as an excellent match and the wealthiest and most respected hebrews would fain to have had him for a son-in-law just as even nowadays the israelites are very desirous of the honor of marrying their daughters to the sons of rabbis or scholars but the meditative youth whose mind was far above anything corporeal and possessed by the thirst for knowledge stealthily left his home and joined the caravans going to india it stands to reason that jesus christ should have thought primarily of going to india first because at that epoch egypt formed part of the roman possessions secondly and principally because a very active commercial exchange with india had made common report in judea of the majestic character and unsurpassed richness of the arts and sciences in this marvellous country to which even now the aspirations of all civilized peoples are directed here the evangelists once more lose the thread of the terrestrial life of jesus luke says he was in the deserts till the day of his shewing unto israel luke chapter one verse eighty which clearly demonstrates that nobody knew where the holy youth was until his sudden reappearance sixteen years later arrived in india this land of marvels jesus began to frequent the temples of the jainites there exists until today on the peninsula of hindustan a sectarian cult under the name of jainism it forms a kind of connecting link between buddhism and brahmanism and preaches the destruction of all other beliefs which it declares are corroded by falsehood it dates from the seventh century before jesus christ and its name is derived from the word jain conqueror which was assumed by its founders as expressive of its destined triumph over its rivals in sympathetic admiration for the spirit of the young man the jainites asked him to stay with them but jesus left them to settle in jagannath where he devoted himself to the study of treatises on religion philosophy etc jagannath is one of the chief sacred sites of brahmins and at the time of christ was of great religious importance according to tradition the ashes of the illustrious brahmin krishna who lived in fifteen hundred and eighty b c are preserved there in the hollow of a tree near a magnificent temple to which thousands make pilgrimage every year krishna collected and put in order the vedas which he divided into four books rikt jagur salman and artafan in commemoration of which great work he received the name of vyasa he who collected and divided the vedas and he also compiled the vedanta and eighteen purans which contain four hundred thousand stanzas in jagarnath is also found a very precious library of sanskrit books and religious manuscripts jesus spent there six years in studying the language of the country and the sanskrit which enabled him to absorb the religious doctrines 
philosophy, medicine, and mathematics. He found much to blame in Brahminical laws and usages, and publicly joined issue with the Brahmins, who in vain endeavored to convince him of the sacred character of their established customs. Jesus, among other things, deemed it extremely unjust that the laborer should be oppressed and despised, and that he should not only be robbed of hope of future happiness, but also be denied the right to hear the religious services. He, therefore, began preaching to the Shudras, the lowest caste of slaves, telling them that, according to their own laws, God is the father of all men, that all which exists exists only through him, that before him all men are equal, and that the Brahmins had obscured the great principle of monotheism by misinterpreting Brahma's own words, and lay excessive stress upon the observance of the exterior ceremonials of the cult. Here are the words in which, according to the doctrine of the Brahmins, God himself speaks to the angels. I have been from eternity, and shall continue to be eternally. I am the first cause of everything that exists in the east and in the west, in the north and in the south, above and below, in heaven and in hell. I am older than all things. I am the spirit and the creation of the universe, and also its creator. I am all-powerful. I am the God of gods, the King of kings. I am Parabrahma, the great soul of the universe. After the world appeared by the will of Parabrahma, God created human beings, whom he divided into four classes, according to their colors, white, Brahmins, red, Kshatriyas, yellow, Vaisyas, and black, Shudras. Brahma drew the first from his own mouth and gave them for their appanage the government of the world, the care of teaching men the laws, of curing and judging them. Therefore do the Brahmins occupy only the offices of priests and preachers, are expounders of the Vedas, and must practice celibacy. The second caste of Kshatriyas issued from the hand of Brahma. He made of them warriors, entrusting them with the care of defending society. All the kings, princes, captains, governors, and military men belong to this caste, which lives on the best terms with the Brahmins, since they cannot subsist without each other, and the peace of the country depends on the alliance of the lights and the sword, of Brahma's temple and the royal throne. The Vaisyas, who constitute the third caste, issued from Brahma's belly. They are destined to cultivate the ground, raise cattle, carry on commerce, and practice all kinds of trades in order to feed the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas. Only on holidays are they authorized to enter the temple and listen to the recital of the Vedas. At all other times, they must attend to their business. The lowest caste, that of the black one, or Shudras, issued from the feet of Brahma to be the humble servants and slaves of the three preceding castes. They are interdicted from attending the reading of the Vedas at any time. Their touch contaminates a Brahmin, Kshatriya, or even a Vaisya, who comes in contact with them. They are wretched creatures, deprived of all human rights. They cannot even look at the members of the other castes, nor defend themselves, nor, when sick, receive the attendance of a physician. Death alone can deliver the Shudra from a life of servitude. And even then, freedom can only be attained under the condition that, during his whole life, he shall have served diligently and without complaint some member of the privileged classes. Then only it is promised that the soul of the Shudra shall, after death, be raised to a superior caste. If a Shudra has been lacking in obedience to a member of the privileged classes, 
or has in any way brought their disfavor upon himself, he sinks to the rank of a pariah, who is banished from all cities and villages, and is the object of general contempt, as an abject being who can only perform the lowest kind of work. The same punishment may also fall upon members of another caste. These, however, may, through repentance, fasting, and other trials, rehabilitate themselves in their former caste, while the unfortunate Sudra, once expelled from his, has lost it forever. From what has been said above, it is easy to explain why the Vaisyas and Sudras were animated with adoration for Jesus, who, in spite of the threats of the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, never forsook those poor people. End of Section 8 Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama